invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua 10. Um, when I was uh, giving Kim the text, I forgot. I, I went to look at exactly what verse I'd started with, and then I forgot. I got distracted, and I never went back. And so I'd put Joshua 10, 2, but I meant to put an 8 there, 28. 10, 28 is where we're going to be beginning. <clears throat> We're going to read all the way through 11.23. And sometimes as we come to a book like Joshua, with our modern sensibilities as I pray, we read about all the destruction uh, and and the wiping out of peoples and uh, kind of rubs us the wrong way. But uh, the Lord is executing judgment upon folks who uh, had engaged in some heinous abominations. He was using the people of Israel to do so. And so uh, things like child sacrifice were being practiced by the Canaanites. And so we basically have here, as as we come to this part of the book of Joshua, where the, the conquest is wrapping up and we're about to move into that section where the land is divvied out and the inheritance is given to the people of Israel. You get a bit of a summation here in these verses, but we'll press on and hopefully we can find some things here that will encourage us for the battle today. Uh, Joshua 10:28 As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoured he, he devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna. And fought against Libna, and the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it and he captured it with its king and all its towns and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king so he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. 
When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinaroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merim to fight with Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merim and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Mishrapoth Maim, and westward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword of all who, all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of those cities, of these cities, and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowlands from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal Gad and the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim, from the hill country and Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. May God bless the reading and hearing of his words. That's quite a bit of battle and fighting. Well, I was talking with a couple of folks this week about just the blanket of anxiety that seems to cover us today. And uh, this got me to thinking about uh, the sermon and, and, uh, and anxiety, the anxieties of our day. And so I did a little internet research and I, f I found a, an article that sums it up very well. It's a 
psychologist. He says, uh, Graham C.L. Davey, he says, We still experience many traditional causes of anxiety, such as poor health, difficult relationships, unemployment, poverty and disadvantage, loneliness, work stress, and exposure to violence, trauma, and conflict. Even in our modern world, some of these traditional sources of anxiety are on the rise. These include loneliness, relationship factors such as divorce, violence and abuse, including childhood abuse and neglect, increased working hours and more stressful work procedures, and a general sense of lack of control over our own destinies, especially among our youngsters who are introduced to the possibility of failure earlier and earlier in their lives as a result of increased systematic educational testing. My wife, the teacher, liked that. She doesn't like all this testing that they do. He goes on. In addition, modern technology has provided some entirely new sources of anxiety for the present generations. These include 24-hour perpetual connectivity, the need to multitask across a range of different activities, and increasingly emotive news alerts and doomsday scenarios. Breaking news, you know, and it's always bad news, isn't it? Uh, or, you know, when we see the weather reports and they, you know, we're expecting a hurricane and then we, you know, go out and some people are out there surfing because it's just not that bad. Um, but it was supposedly going to be the worst storm ever. Well, very soon almost every appliance in our houses will be connected to the Internet, fueling fears of identity theft, data hacking, fishing, grooming and trolling. Even that bastion of modern-day living the computer brings with it daily worrisome hassles that include crashing hard drives, forgotten passwords, and the frustration of daily transactions that begin to seem strangely distant when all we'd like to do is speak to a real person. So, social media use is associated with social anxiety and loneliness, and it can generate feelings of disconnectedness when we view what seems like the rich lives and social successes of others. The consequence of social media use is that youngsters count their social success in terms of metrics such as the number of friends they have on sites like Facebook, not the number of genuine confidence they, confidants they have, confidants who would be true friends in times of difficulty and need. Well. That uh, describes uh, all the, uh, a lot of the factors that we experience in our day. But this article was written in 2018. If the guy could only see what was coming. A pandemic, uh, the last election and all the strife that's come with that, the renewed attention on the abortion debate that we have today. Uh, and, and we look around us and we see that our culture is increasingly anti-Christian in its values from a from a, uh, from a Christian perspective, this causes us a lot of anxiety. We, we see that it looks like we're losing. You know, people don't come to church anymore. They don't have Christian values anymore. And the church itself is racked with scandals. Well, I hope today as we dive into this, this uh, recounting of the history of Israel as they conquered the promised land that we can be filled with more confidence as believers. As we look at what's going on here and we draw an analogy between what happened in Joshua's day and look and, and, and compare it to where we are today and, and draw several principles out of that. Well, let's dive into the text. Uh, first, I want to 
highlight how the book of Joshua talks to us about the enemies, the enemies of Israel. The latter part of chapter 10 sums up the conquest of southern Canaan. The five kings are routed in the first part of chapter 10, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon that we looked at last week. And then the latter part of chapter 10 describes the conquest of the rest of southern Canaan, cities of Makeda, Libna, Lachish, Gezer, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. It's a summation, so it just sounds like Israel is steamrolling through southern Canaan. And, and yes, in one sense, they were very successful. However, it, it was an impossible task without the Lord on their side. It was also hard work on their part. I mean, it was bloody warfare. It was a day-after-day fight. Don't lose sight of that as, as he just relates one after the other, after the other, after the other. And especially as we move to chapter 11, and then the Israelites turn north. The first part of chapter 11 is about the conquest of northern Canaan. Notice the, the time spent by the author in verses 1 through 5 describing the enemies of the north. All these kings and all these people groups from the north, south, east, and west. And it tells us here, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and king of Shimron, the king of Akshvah, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the lowlands, and in the west, and the east, and the west, and the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the, all these peoples. And it says there in verse 4, And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And that's what tiny Israel faced. A great horde in number like the sand on the seashore with very many horses and chariots, which the Israelites did not have. It kind of reminds me of uh, Star Wars and the Ewoks. You know, they were little, they looked like little teddy bears. And in the Return of the Jedi, you know, they're fighting the mighty empire on their planet. And these, these little teddy bear-like creatures are using rocks and beating stormtroopers. And, or it's like a peasant's revolt, you know, where you have uh, farmers uniting together with pitchforks and farm implements to fight a mighty battle. That's kind of the picture you get here uh, of Israel with their uh, simple ways and God on their side. They're facing this mighty horde. Now to win a battle against a technologically superior force, you must have either better tactics or just sheer greater numbers to overwhelm the enemy. Or, in the case of Israel, you have the omnipotent Lord God creator of the universe fighting for you. That's what they had. Now, what does this have to do with us today in the 21st century? Well, as I said before, we can draw some, uh, some uh, analogous principles from what's going on here and apply it to our day. Because we, and this is the first principle, we as Christians are in a war. We face battles. Paul says this in Ephesians 6, Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. So, we've got this spiritual battle going on uh, in our lives that... Sometimes we don't take it, uh, we don't, we aren't mindful of it, and we don't take that battle very seriously. And when we read things like this, we think of, you know, kind of the spiritual realm being foreign to us. But we have to understand that this spiritual battle manifests itself in very physical ways, in our physical lives, in our day to day existence. Sin is a matter of evil and spiritual battles. You know, we all wrestle with our own sin and uh, we don't often think of it. Uh, and the reason that we fall into it is because we don't think of it in terms of spiritual warfare, that we are consorting with the enemy when we sin and that it does matter. You know, our besetting sins are besetting sins because either they're hidden from everybody's sight. Of course, we're not hidden from God's sight. But nobody sees what we're doing in the privacy of our own room, our own home. Or our sins have become socially acceptable. And so we're not prodded along by any external pressure to change. If we think about these things in, in, in the sense that there is a spiritual war going on, that changes your perspective about it. You know, Satan is trying to defeat you. Satan is trying to trip you up. Satan is trying to hinder the work of God in your life and in the lives of others. And when we sin, it is a matter of evil, of spiritual warfare. You know, we, we need to realize that we have an enemy. The devil does exist. You know, we make two errors in respect to the devil. Either we deny that he exists or act like he doesn't exist, or some people give the devil too much credit. So we need to not go in either of those two directions, but we do have an enemy. We have the devil, we have the world, and we have our own flesh. And the world appeals to our flesh. And we are doing daily, moment-by-moment -moment battle. And it may not seem like it's all that spiritual warfare-ish, to coin a phrase, because it's our normal existence. It's the way we live our lives, and it's, you know, what everybody's dealing with. It's very mundane in a lot of ways. You remember a couple of weeks ago when I was telling you about Herod the Great and then his progeny who were who mentioned in the New Testament, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, all three of them worked to, de to destroy Christ and his church. Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus. He killed all the babies in and around Bethlehem uh, because the Magi showed up and said, we've come to see the one who's born king of the Jews. Herod, Herod was king of the Jews. And I'm sure in his mind he was just trying to stamp out a potential rival. He probably wasn't thinking, you know what, I'm a tool of Satan right now. I'm working for my guy Satan, and we're going to win this thing. That probably did not enter into Herod's thinking. He was just full of, uh, of a lust for power and, and for control, and that drove him to fight against Christ and his church. The same is true for 
his, his grandsons, Herod Antipas, who was actually involved in putting Christ to death, beheaded John the Baptist. They didn't think, yeah, I'm, I'm working for Satan when I'm doing this, but they were. That's exactly what they were doing. They were fulfilling the prophecies we looked at in Revelation 12, where the dragon is trying to destroy the child who was born there. So we need to think about that. You know, we may live our lives and, and not think much about spiritual warfare, but we are involved in spiritual warfare if you're a believer. And what are we seeing around us today? We see what 1 John 2.16 talks about. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. See, all these things that drive us, our desires... And the world is encouraging us to engage in those things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of eyes, and the pride of our own lives. We're in this war. And, and sometimes it feels like we're losing this war. But that's not the case. Second principle. God fights for Israel against insurmountable odds. And God has promised to fight for us as well. In fact, he's already fought for us. He's, he's already conquered. He's already won the war. Notice what it says about Joshua, verse 30. And this is repeated over and over. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. The Lord gave it into the hand of Israel. Verse 42. Joshua captured all these kings and their Lord at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. The Lord God did it. And what is this all about hamstringing the horses? That just seems cruel. And, and you would think, hey, they, they could get some chariots. Why were they burning the chariots? They could arm themselves with the chariots. Well, that's exactly what God doesn't want them to do. They don't need technology if the Lord is fighting for them. The Lord whipped the, whipped the chariots and the horses. So you don't need something that's inferior to what you got. And that's a good lesson for us as well. The Lord has promised to be on our side. And we talked about this last week. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is in control of history. As they sang at the beginning, the Ancient of Days. He's the eternal God and all of history is His story. It will end as He has decided it will end. He has a plan and it is occurring. It is coming to fruition. God is in control of this, and God cannot lose because he's God. And if you're on God's side, you're going to win. doesn't matter what the battle looks like today. In the end, the Lord and his people win. And I'm not just being triumphalistic here. You know, I'm not fiddling while Rome burns. And we can look around at our culture and think, well, it's all burning down around us. But no, God is going to build his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It is not possible. Yes, there may be some losses along the way, some battles that don't go very well in our lives. But overall, we are more than conquerors in Christ. Don't forget that in the midst of the battle. As we look around and you, you feel anxious about all that's going on around us, God is in control. He's on the throne. Shannon 
mentioned it in his sermon a couple of weeks ago. He, he mentioned Revelation 4, where God is on the throne. I preached to you from Revelation 5, where Christ takes the scroll. He's executing God's will in this world, and it's going to come to fruition. God has it under control. But that doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing. What did Joshua do? Um, Ralph Davis in his commentary said, Joshua did not let go and let God. He grabbed hold. You know, God said, I'm giving this, these people into your hand. Uh, I'm, I'm giving you the promised land. Well, did Joshua just say, okay, and do nothing? No, he, he made plans. He's, he made tactical decisions. He does one in this. The text hides it because you don't know the terrain, but where Joshua goes and defeats those kings in chapter 11 is up in the mountains. And so uh, chariots do you no good in the mountains. You've got to get down on the plains. So Joshua comes on them suddenly in the mountains by that stream, and he's able to defeat them. See, he's using his brain, his wisdom. He's using tactics to win the, the war that God has said he's going to win. And of course, the Lord is fighting for him. But Joshua, Joshua carries out the plan. Joshua goes to work. The people of God go to work, go to war, and fight the battles with the Lord on their side. Are you engaged in your Walk with the Lord. Are you engaged in the warfare? Are you engaged in the battle? Or are you kind of sitting on the sideline doing not much of anything? You know, on the front of our bulletin, we talk about three things, and I've mentioned this in the past, but worship, fellowship, and mission. These are the three things that we're about. Worship is what we're doing today, obviously, and that is... uh, Highly important, it's the most important thing that we do, is give honor and glory to the Lord. Fellowship is what we all need, and it's kind of the second, you know, not only are these three values that we have, but worship, fellowship, and mission is kind of a progression. People, they're, usually their first encounter with First Presbyterian Church is in worship. You come and visit worship service. Well, the next step for you is to get involved in fellowship. Get involved in some smaller groups. Connect with people in the church, the body of Christ, so that you can be encouraged in your faith. So you're moving along in your relationship with the church and what we can do for you here. But then the final one is mission. How can we take what we've been given and share it with others? As you see the progression there from coming ourselves to bringing others and to helping others and sharing out there in the world wherever we might go. Are we involved in mission? Are we doing something for the Lord? Are we doing what God has told us to do? That's what Joshua did. It repeatedly tells us that he did everything that Moses had commanded him. He carried it all out. And that's the final thing I want you to see. The faithfulness of Joshua. The faithfulness of Joshua is a picture of the faithfulness of Christ. And here we're moving from an analogy to typology. And we've seen this a few times throughout Joshua where, where Joshua is a type of Christ. He, he foreshadows Jesus in some ways. His name, Joshua, well, <clears throat> Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. 
means Yahweh saves. Joshua was the head of his people, the people of God, the people of Israel. And you'll notice here it, it repeatedly says, and I, I love the way this phrase pops up in the first part or the latter part of chapter 10. It says, then Joshua and all Israel with him. Joshua and all Israel with Joshua conquered, defeated the king. Joshua and all Israel with Joshua. They were able to follow him and he led them to the victory time and time and time again. As they were united to Joshua, with Joshua, they won the battle. And what did Joshua do? 11.15, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. We could say the same thing about Jesus. Just as the Lord had commanded Jesus, so Jesus did. I have come to do my Father's will, Jesus said. And he left not one part of that will undone. Paul says in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent forth his son. He was born of a woman, born of Mary, became a real human being, and he was born under the law. He was God himself, and he was born as someone who was subject to the law. He fulfilled the law. He kept the law perfectly. You know, I prayed earlier that we had sinned in thought, word, and deed. We had sinned in ways that, uh, in things that we have done and things that we had not done. We have done things that were wrong. We have failed to do the things that were right and that we're supposed to do. That was never true of Jesus. He always fulfilled the law 100% of the time in thought, word, and deed, in the very intentions of his heart. Indeed, he was sinless. He could not sin. Why? To redeem those who were under the law, you and me, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And what does 1 John 5, 4 say? Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So just as the Israelites were connected to Joshua, they followed Joshua and they won the battle, so we connected to Christ, united to him by faith, are guaranteed to win the battle, to win the war. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And verse 23, again, can be said of us who put their faith in Jesus. It says, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. One day, we will experience that on a universal scale. The Lord Jesus is going to give an inheritance, the new heavens and new earth, to his people, and we will have rest from the fight. Eternal rest. Jesus says, come to me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Indeed, he gives us rest for our souls. 
He is going to give us an eternal rest. An eternal rest that's beyond our imagination. Don't be anxious. Don't be discouraged. The Lord's fighting for you. The Lord has won the battle already. Trust in Him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we pray that you would forgive us for, for the times we haven't taken the battle seriously, where we have consorted with the enemy through our sinfulness, where we have defamed your name. Forgive us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to not be anxious. Lord, our lives are filled with many reasons that we might think that we should be or we can be anxious. But Lord, you told us to not be anxious about anything, but to pray and experience the peace of God. So Lord, we pray that we would know the peace of knowing that you are on the throne, that you have our best interests at heart, and you are executing that for your church. And Lord, if there's any here who don't know you, who are, whose lives are racked with unrest and anxiety, I pray for them, Lord. I pray that they would cry out to you now. Repent of their sins and enthrone you in their hearts as Lord and Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.